Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. And trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Join me in prayer, please. Lord, um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for calling us out of our sleep, Lord, into worship with your gathered body here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we do pray for those that are absent this morning, Lord, that are traveling. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give them mercies and bring them home safely. We pray for those among us that are sick. And, Lord, that you would heal them. Lord, those that are hurting, Lord, that you would bring them comfort and the peace of Christ. And, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our worship this morning. We thank you for song and liturgy, Lord. We thank you for the proclamation of your word. And, Lord, we pray that you would continue to honor us, Lord, in our worship. Lord, that you would be honored by our worship, Lord, as we hear your word and as we make thanks at your table. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, for those that were here last week or have listened, and for those that weren't, we're actually we're continuing in Isaiah today, right? So we, we started last week. We'll be there today, obviously, because that's what we just read. And then we'll, we'll actually spend next week as well with this prophet, and then we'll jump back over to the New Testament for a few weeks. But you'll notice, though, that we're also in the final chapter of Isaiah. Uh, if you've got a Bible open, we're actually, there's only 66 chapters in Isaiah, and we're starting at the beginning of Isaiah 66. So... This is kind of this. This means that obviously, if we're going to be in Isaiah one more week, that this is probably kind of a two-part, or really, since we started last week, a three-part message. Right? It's a cliffhanger message. So I'll go ahead and forewarn you that, and Sharon can attest to this. I, I was having a hard time this past week figuring out how to end this morning. So it's going to feel kind of like a cliffhanger. Right? It's just going to kind of end, and then we're going to come to the table. But that's okay. Right? Because we're going to pick up right where we left off next week. So. But if you'll remember, just as a quick uh, kind of recap, if you'll remember from last week, we were in Isaiah 65, 1 to 9, and we really focused on the fact that the image of God in us, or to use the Latin, the Imago Dei, it has been broken and it has been distorted by the fall, by sin, and even by death itself. But we also noticed that, uh, noted that the Lord promises to restore and to redeem his image in us, and that he has done so in Christ Because he told us there that he was ready to be sought, he was ready to be found. And because he was ready to be sought and found, he manifested himself in the person of Christ. He has manifested himself by the pouring out of his Holy Spirit 
upon those who were not asking for him and who were not looking for him. But then in the middle section of that text, in verses 2 through 5, we, we came across some very explicit examples that illustrated to us really how much the image of God has been distorted and broken by our sin and by death. And those examples that we read last week illustrated for us really a complete rejection of God, a rejection of him through false worship, a rejection of him really through false sacrifice on Israel's part, and also even a rejection of God through a false claim of being holy. And what that did, as we saw the Lord say, this provokes him to his face. It provokes him to anger and to judgment. And so as we move into these four verses from Isaiah 66, think of them in some ways as existing within what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 9 of Isaiah 65. And so beginning here in verse 1, and really kind of continuing into the first half of verse 2, again the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So just thinking through the context again of last week. As we begin here, remember, again, we read how Israel, they rejected the Lord by rejecting his temple. They rejected the Lord by rejecting the altar. They made sacrifices. They were worshiping in places that they were called not to do so. And so ultimately that what they're doing is they're rejecting the covenant that the Lord God had made with them. And so in the context of that rejection, in order to draw their attention back to him, in order really even for us to draw our attention back to him, what God does to bring us back to a proper understanding of who he is, he goes about as macro as he can for our own perception and our own understanding. He takes them immediately back to his creative work and his creative power. And Paul, what he does is he actually uses the same tactic in the book of Romans in order to lay the foundation for the necessity of Christ and the gospel. He has to go macro to go micro, right? Not to be cheesy and come up with a cheesy catchphrase, but really that's what, what's happening here, right? He goes macro to go micro. Because here what we see is that Israel, they have rejected God's temple. And so the Lord proclaims then that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He has made everything. He is its creator. He is its owner. At the end of the day, everything that has been made has been made by him and it has been made for him. To get to the point, he's telling them, there is absolutely nothing that I need. And because God needs nothing, he comes to this rhetorical question in verse one and he says, what is the house then that you would build for me? If I don't need anything, what's the house that you could build for me? If I don't need anything, what is the place that you could make where I could rest? Now, most of us know that rhetorical questions are, by definition, questions that are used to make a point, right, rather than to actually get an answer. So, for example, you know, a good rhetorical question is, doesn't Sharon look pretty today? Well, the answer is forever and always yes, right? You don't have to give an answer. It's just understood, right? That is the the answer. You can laugh at that. That is is a funny joke. But, But think about this rhetorical question that God is asking here for a moment, especially in light of the rejection of him that Israel has done that we saw last week, and even us, by our own sin, how we reject the Lord. In asking this rhetorical question, what God is doing is he's recalibrating our understanding of who he actually is, of who he truly is. So think of it this way. His temple has been rejected. And so if if God needs nothing, if God has gone as macro as he can go and brings our attention to who he is by reminding us of his creative work, then what exactly does God need? What can contain God? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing, right? 
Because the only time that we know of where something has contained the fullness of the Godhead has been in the incarnation itself. Because Paul tells us in Colossians, for in Christ the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. So consider these questions that God is asking here in this verse. He's asking, what exactly is the house that you could build for me? What exactly would you have me rest? Where would you have me rest? Because I sit in the heavens, and the earth is where I rest my feet. I have made everything by my hand. What exactly do you think you can build that can contain me? Stephen understood this because he proclaims this exact passage in Acts chapter 7 right before he's stoned to death. And he exclaims, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he says, as the prophet says, and then he reads this passage, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so these things came to be, declares the Lord. Augustine writes here, and he just says, God is beyond all physical measurement. And then John Calvin, who is as wordy as he can be, he says, if men would just diligently consider what the nature of God is, they would not contrive any new modes of worship for him, nor would they measure God by themselves. The point here is, is that thinking along the lines of Israel's false worship and false offerings and even our own sin that we use to reject God and his covenant, Israel was attempting to hem God in. And we see this throughout many of the pre-exilic prophets. Because they had, what they had done is they had adopted the worship of the false gods of the people around them. The thing that they were expressly commanded not to do. And Israel and Judah had convinced themselves that like those false gods, well, Yahweh also had his one place where he dwelt. Those false gods had a place. Yahweh has his place. His place is in the temple. His place is in the altar. And so that's where he liked to stay because that's what he's given us. For them, Yahweh was contained within the temple because that's where his glory was manifested, which is why when he removes his glory, it's a big deal. In their mind, God is not outside of the temple. He's in the temple. So in their mind, they knew exactly where to go find Yahweh and where to keep him boxed in. I mean, we're, we're just as guilty of this, right? We try, we try to box the Lord in. We try to convince ourselves that he fits within this nice little box that we can set aside at will and pick up at will, right? Matthew Henry, who was a pastor in the 17th century, he writes this. He says, what satisfaction could the eternal Godhead take in a house made with men's hands? Or what occasion does God, like us, have for a house to repose himself in? If God required a house for himself... He would have made one when he made the world. And the point here is that regardless of their rejection of his temple, by drawing their attention and our attention back to the macro level of his creative work in this first verse, what God is doing is reminded us that he needs nothing and he cannot be contained by anything, including the temple itself. But then... This question isn't just macro, right? It doesn't, he doesn't just take their attention to his creative work, but here comes my cheesy catchphrase again, right? He goes micro a little bit, right? He goes macro to go micro, right? So there are micro ramifications to it as well. So keeping our attention on this rejection of the temple that we saw last week, notice that God states here, he says that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. The temple isn't his throne. His footstool is not the altar. Heaven and earth are. And by making this point, what God is doing is he's, he's intentionally drawing our attention upwards. 
He's drawing our attention outside of earthly places and rightfully focusing them upwards to where he is, to heaven, in order that we might worship him, worship him for who he really is. Calvin writes here, he says, God's aim in this is to shake off our complacency of being a hypocritical worshiper by reminding us that he fills all things and that it is he who is so far above everything that he is not able to be shut up or confined within any place whatsoever. And so as the Lord moves into this rhetorical question here, he realigns our understanding not, all, not only of who he is, but of worship, of what worship of him should look like. Because Israel has assumed that the right worship of Yahweh took place in a specific way, in a specific place, in a specific time. And while God had ordained every moment of their rituals and their liturgy and their sacrifices, as prophet after prophet after prophet would keep telling them, they continue to fall into the sin of only paying half-hearted lip service to God and not actually giving of themselves to him. And this is really Paul's whole point in Romans 12 when he says we need to present our bodies and we need to present our renewed minds as living sacrifices to God. And so on the micro level then, what God is doing is he's reframing and refocusing our perception of worship. And he tells us in in the second part of verse 2, he says, This is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So remember last week, not only did the people of Israel reject the Lord by rejecting the temple, but they had also rejected the altar. And ultimately, this this makes no sense to them. And it really, in some ways, doesn't make sense to us that, that God would not desire a sacrifice, that God would not desire burnt offerings from us. David would lament in Psalm 51, he said, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would offer it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God, David says, and that Isaiah quotes here, are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God desires the one who is humble, the one who is contrite or repentant, rather is another word we could use, in spirit, the one who trembles at his word. To put it plainly, God desires the people that he has made a covenant with. He doesn't desire their deeds. He doesn't desire their offerings. He doesn't desire any merit that they could probably attempt to offer. He just desires that, like a husband desires his wife, he desires his people to just be his. Because remember, Israel, they had rejected the right worship on the altar by sacrificing, not on the altar, but on bricks. Here, the Lord tells us that true worship, true commitment to him as his covenant people is done by the one who is humble and by by the one who is repentant. But he gives us another characteristic here that we need to spend a moment on because we get the idea that, and we understand, right? God desires us to be humble. I mean, that makes sense, right? Christ was humble. He was meek and mild, so we should be humble as well. We also totally understand why God desires for us to be contrite or to be repentant. I mean, the basic principle of Christianity, other than the fact that Christ has come, died, risen, and ascended, is that we are called to repent and to believe in the gospel. But we come to this last quality here, and we kind of ask the question, why would God want us to tremble at his word? Right? Because as believers, right, we hear the word of the Lord. Calvin said that we hear the, the word of the Lord, and it's one of the sweetest things that a believer could hear would be the word of God. So why would he want us to tremble at it? 
there's probably more than two, but I'm going to give you two ways, right? Because it seems like that's just my habit, right, is to give you two, two clarifications. So I think there's two things that can be understood here. The first way, and really understanding these two ways really helps inform us how we interpret the rest of this passage that we're looking at. The first way of trembling at God's word is that trembling is actually what leads to having a humble and, and repentant spirit. At the end of the book of Ezra, there are two places where, after, after hearing the word of the Lord, Ezra learns of the sin of the people that had remained in the land during the exile. And in Ezra 9 and Ezra 10, the people, they hear the word of the Lord and they tremble at God's word because now they have fully comprehended their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And because they had now fully understood their unfaithfulness to the covenant of God, they renew their covenant with him. What they do is they hear the words of God and they tremble. And so they humble themselves and they repent. And they repent in a pretty big way because they had started to intermarry with the tribes around them, which was a huge no-no according to the law. And they repented of that. But a second way of trembling that is also very helpful to understand here is that for some people... God's word doesn't cause humility and it doesn't cause repentance. For some people, they hear the word of the Lord and they hate it. And they hate God for it. And really, this is nothing new to us, right? I imagine that every one of us in the room could probably think of at least one person that would fall into this category. Because this, it's this kind of trembling at God's word that really the Lord gave us examples of last week in Isaiah 65. When they reject the temple, they reject the altar, they reject right worship. But there are also really many who claim that they have a reverence and fear of God, but they show their hatred of him by disregarding and rejecting his word, even within the church. And both of those kinds of trembling are important to keep in mind as we look at these last two verses. And so he says here, he says, you, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble, you who tremble in humility and repentance, but also you who hear his word and tremble and hate and disdain for his word. Hear his word and tremble. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who, would, who will be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple the sound from the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So notice this trembling in fear and this trembling in hatred that, that really both groups are the intended audience of these last two verses. Because you can see it, you can see it really clearly with the tone that's really being used, especially in verse 5. Because you can see there's a tone here that, that of ridicule and mocking directed toward those who are humble and repentant from those who are filled with hate and disdain. Listen again, God says in verse 5, he says, Your brothers who hate you, and they cast you out for my namesake, they, they have said, let the Lord be glorified so that we can see your joy. So let's break this down. Let's, let's try to understand this. First, the Lord calls them our brothers, right? He says, he says these people are our brothers. And this is a very extremely telling category that, the God, that God puts them in, both for the faithful in Israel and even for us today in the church. Because these were the people that they lived around. These are the people we live around. These are the people that we know. And more importantly for Israel and for us, these are the people that we worship with. Now, I'm not saying that applies to anybody sitting in the room at Christ community, right? Other than maybe Craig. No, I'm kidding. Just because he's sitting right there and so it's easy to, right? No. 
But this is extremely telling that God refers to these people as our brothers. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death. So why would God call them our brothers right? if they hate us, if they hate his word, if they reject his covenant, if they ridicule his people and cast them out? Why would he call them our brothers? He calls them our brothers because they have usurped that name. One church father tells us, he says that the title of brother, they bear the title of brother because they too have also been nourished within the bosom of the church. Calvin, actually, he gets a little salty, which he's prone to do. And he calls them hypothetical or hypocritical worshipers. He says this, he says, because it is customary with hypocritical worshipers of God to make a loud boasting of their pompous ritual, the Lord is arming and fortifying true believers to endure their attacks. So God calls them brothers, because, but because they tremble and hate and disdain, they cast out those who tremble in humility. They cast out those who uphold the name of the Lord. They might be among us, as John says, but they were never really of us. They've usurped the name of brother. But also notice here in this verse that there's a content, the content of their ridicule and mocking. Again, they say this. They say, let the Lord be glorified so that we may see your joy. Now, if you were to just come at this at face value, right, that sounds, that sounds kind of nice, right? I mean, not taking the whole ridicule out, the fact that they're not really our brothers, but kind of our brothers, it sounds kind of nice, right? Why wouldn't anybody want the Lord to be glorified, right? Why, why wouldn't anybody want us to see, to see our joy in the Lord? Well, thankfully, I think Eugene Peterson does a great job with the message paraphrase on this. He actually translates this in such a way that he, and he, he did it directly from the Greek and Hebrew, so it, it's helpful, but... He really translates the intentional mocking in this tone. He, he writes it this way. He says, they taunt you and they say, show us God's glory. Because if God is so great, then why aren't you happy? Jerome, he, he's really helpful here. He stresses that we should keep in mind the context of this ridicule. We might be ridiculed for submitting in humility and, and repentance to God's word. But he says, he says, they're not hating you or casting you out, or judging you because of any evil that you have done to them. Rather, they're doing these things for the, for the Lord's name. And for the Lord's word, they curse you as evil. Or to put it in the language of our text for today, because they do not tremble at the word of the Lord in humility and repentance, they hate and disdain those who do. One commentator, he took this even further. He wrote that those who, who mock are those who have laughed at the promises of God. But even more so, they've also laughed at the prophecies concerning the Christ. And so because they hate and disdain the promises of God, they mock the word of God and they mock those who keep it. Consider just how this can be applied to our own context today, not, not even including the news over the last 48 hours. Christ has died, he's risen, he's, he's, he's ascended. We're between the advents. We're waiting and we've been waiting for a very long time. And there are many throughout history that have usurped the name of brother. Who laugh at the promises of God. Who mock at those, as Jude says in verse 3, those who hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they mock it no differently than the ones who are mocking here, the ones who were mocking in the passage we saw last week, by practicing false worship. They mock it by practicing false sacrifice. They mock it by practicing false holiness. 
all in the name of tolerance and love, because they hate the eternal truths of God's word, and they hate what God's word is calling them to. And so notice at the end of the verse, God tells us, he says that they are actually the ones who will end up being shamed, which shame is the ultimate goal of anybody that's mocking someone else. If you're mocking somebody that bears the image of God, your, your goal, whether or not you want to admit it, is to shame that person. You want to shame that image bearer of the Lord. But there's an important lesson for those of us who do respond to God's word in humility and repentance. Within this last little clause of verse 5, God is reminding us that it is he who will be the one to take up the task of repayment for any injustice done to his people. As Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, Never avenge yourselves, beloved, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so God, what he does then is he moves into this final verse, and he he makes good on that promise. He says, The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. In verse 6, Really, here's a two-ways part again, right? Verse 6 could be understood really in two ways. Not only as a promise of judgment, but also as a promise of redemption. And I think we can see this dual purpose of this verse by just one specific word that God uses here. It's the Hebrew word coal, like our burning coal, but it's not spelled that way. Or you could, you know, put a guttural in there a little bit and call it, you know, coal, right? But... This Hebrew word coal in our ESV and in some other English translations, it's translated as the word sound like we see here, right? A sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord. But a better rendering of this word is the word voice. The Septuagint translates it this way. I think the King James does, maybe the New King James and some others. A sound is one thing, but a voice, a voice has a different understanding altogether, especially as it relates to the Lord. So consider this verse again, the voice of an uproar from the city, the voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord rings out. It rings out in recompense. It rings out in repayment. It rings out in judgment. So bringing this forward in in the Lord Jesus, the word of God incarnate, we have the already not yet manifestation of the coming judgment and the redemption of the Lord. In his first advent, we've seen the already, we've seen the judgment upon sin and death. We just profess that as we sang the creed. But in his second advent, we get the final judgment, the not yet of his final judgment. As we also proclaim in the creed and we just sang, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so as we transition into our time of Eucharist, just before we do, go back with me just a few weeks to Ascension Sunday when we looked at Revelation 22 and Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. This is the same promise given by Christ when he returns in Revelation that we read of here in Isaiah 66. This promise of judgment and redemption is one of great hope and great joy for the one who is humble and repentant in spirit and trembles at God's word. So as I mentioned as we began, today's a cliffhanger message, right? I I didn't really know how to end it well. 
So last week, I'll just say this. Last week we read the promise of the restoration of the image of God in those of us who believe in Christ and have life in his name. Today we are encouraged to tremble at God's word in humility and repentance. But to give you a preview, next week we get to join with the whole church as she is exhorted to rejoice when the voice of the Lord sounds forth and when he comes bringing his recompense. We get to be exhorted and rejoice when he comes bringing his reward and his repayment with him. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to this time to make thanks together at the table, in Christ God has covenanted with us and placed his spirit within us as a guarantee that we are his. So let us come and let us make great thanks that God simply desires his people, not their deeds, not on any merit that they can offer, but God just desires that his people be his with humble and repentant spirits. So may God bless the proclamation of his word.